So in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at this, been with us for any length of time. You know that we've been going through the book of Ephesians. If you guys are new, uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, so we've looked at really pretty much every verse, every chapter up until this point. But in chapters 1 through 3, basically Paul unpacks uh, for us what we've been describing as sort of the actions of a healing God. That what God has done to bring about our healing in an ultimate sense, but also in more of a temporal sense, meaning ultimate sense, meaning what God has done is he's done something unbelievable to, to heal the separation between us and God. In other words, the way C.S. Lewis describes it is that we're not just simply docile, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him, is that we're not just simply docile in our relationship to God, but in reality, we are actually enemies of God. We are basically soldiers with our backs turned against God. We're violently op- opposing God. And yet what God does through the gospel is he does something to transform our hearts so that rather than being enemies in opposition to God, we raise a white flag and we give in to this God who doesn't crush us, but instead was crushed for us. So that we who stand under really God's displeasure, and the Bible describes that as even his judgment, that Jesus took the displeasure of God, the judgment of God for us. So in an ultimate sense, we can be given what we describe as salvation. But on a temporary sense, meaning in this life, I mean temporary as long as you're going to live, 80 years, 90 years, however long you're going to live. In a temporary sense, we now have at work within us the life of God that is now bringing healing into our lives in these outer, outgoing, concentric circles, going into the lives of other people, bringing healing into the lives of other people. This is what the gospel is at work doing in our lives. This is what God is up to in the universe, if you want to think of it that way. So with that being said, I want to begin to jump into Ephesians chapter 1 through 6. What I want to do as we begin to take a look at this is I want to focus on uh, a couple things first before we jump in. One, I want to take a look at a couple different ways of of ancient views that were understood throughout uh, history of uh, the world with regard to the workplace as well as the family, because that's kind of what we're focusing on. So again, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to begin to kind of take a look at a little bit of the way the ancient world would have understood uh, the workplace as well as families. And then we'll take a look at sort of the modern ways in which this would have been understood. And then we'll kind of end with uh, Paul's way of pointing out how the gospel actually reorients us and reorients our hearts to understand things in a way which is healed, redemptive. So in other words, here's what I want to say. The ancient world has a perspective about work as well as family. And the modern world in which we live in has a view about work and family. And by the way, they're not the same. All right? And so that's what we need to understand. And what the gospel does is it basically says, no, the way in which God restores things is not in a consistent form with the ancient world, nor is it in a consistent form with the modern world. It's an entirely different way of viewing workplace and the family. Now, if you understand it correctly, okay, if you understand it correctly, all of us, to some degree, our sensibilities will be offended. You guys hear that? If we understand this clearly, at some point, some of our objections will be made clear. We will be offended to some degree with regard to what Paul is actually saying about the workplace as well as about the family. So, with that, let's take a look at a couple ways in which ancient views were sort of in play uh, in the ancient world with regard to family in the workplace. So, if you want to think of it this way, throughout the ancient world, family was, for the most part, viewed largely as property. 
Uh, it was oftentimes kind of viewed in terms of for their utilitarian value. In other words, so if you were a dad, you had kids, and your kids were basically, for the most part, um, objects that you would raise up, train up, so that they would make good um, hands on whatever type of you know, project you had or whatever type of uh, job or business you ran. Their job mainly was to help assist you. And so any form of training and education was that more of like an apprentice, that they would help you um, do what needs to be done on the farm or in the steel mill or whatever it is that you did. So here's kind of an interesting quote um, uh, with regard to the first century, so first century B.C. Here's what it says. This is from a guy by the name of Hilarion to his wife. He writes, greetings, know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all, uh, do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, obviously had a child, and as soon as I receive my wages, a lot of people believe he was actually a soldier, and soldiers didn't always get paid on time, and so uh, he's waiting for his wages. He says, I will send them to you. If good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. So you can understand a little bit. Um, the idea is that, obviously, little girls didn't have much value. Little boys had greater value. Why? Because in that culture, uh, a, a boy had greater value in being raised up on the farm or doing a job or doing a task. So this is what I mean by they had greater utilitarian value. They were of greater utility or use to the family or the family business. Another way of understanding this uh, was from a guy by the name of Seneca. Some of you might be familiar with him. Uh, next slide. And here's what he has to say. Here we go. We slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge the knife into the sickliest cattle, children who are born weak and deformed. We drown. So again, if you look at it from this angle, that children were basically objects or they were property used for your value, your utility, or your job or your business, then if you had a sickly child or a child was born deformed or was not able to function in a proper utilitarian fashion or form, then it's really of no value. So therefore, you have the right. Now, again, there were reforms within the ancient world that basically say, no, don't do this. Like, this can't be right. And, but nobody really knew how to really fight for this or fight for their rights, or to, and it never really caught on. So for the most part, children were sort of at uh, the disposal of uh, sometimes, in some cases, ruthless dads. And so, as we see in this particular setting. So, again, family in the ancient world is basically viewed largely as property for utilitarian value. And this oftentimes led to heavy discipline or heavy correction on behalf of the father to the child um, so that the child would perform at their maximum. Not so much so that the child would develop relationship with the dad, and, uh, but really so that the child would perform at their maximum level. Another way of kind of looking at this, going further in terms, in terms of looking at the workplace. Now again, like I said, we'll be reading these passages in Ephesians chapter 6 in just a moment that addresses the family as well as the workplace. I just wanted to give a little of the background in terms of the ancient views of, from the world with regard to family and then the workplace. So think about it this way. The ancient view of the workplace... Basically, there was uh, Paul writes, and we'll see this in a moment. I just kind of want to get this off my chest and so that we don't have to deal with it a little bit later. But Paul actually writes, he talks about servants and masters or slaves and masters. Now, immediately in our Western thinking, we may read that and read into that sort of an 18th century version of slavery. And it's really important for us to understand is that there are distinctions that almost every historian recognizes that there are vast 
distinctions between the type of slavery that we saw sort of within the new world uh, as opposed to the slavery that basically existed within the Roman world. So here's a couple examples uh, to form distinctions with regard to that. One is that it was not typically ever based on race. It was never really, for the most part, based on race. I mean, there were occasions when Rome maybe would conquer a particular area that was sort of more of a a racial area, and then those people would become slaves. But it wasn't simply that they would find a particular race of people and begin to hate on them or begin to oppress them. So it was not, by and large, based upon race. Secondly, it was not lifelong. In fact, most slaves in the ancient world would oftentimes be given freedom at around the age of 30. So if you were a slave, so oftentimes the way people become slaves in the ancient world is that, let's say, for example, you owed a debt or your mom and dad owed a debt, and when they died, you didn't have any money, and uh, so you basically would be consumed by a more rich person down the street, and then you would basically become their, uh, and, uh, their servant, and you would work for them. But there would come a point in the ancient Roman world in which you would be released from that so that there were limits uh, set upon that, so that on age 30, you'd be set free. The problem is, though, that kind of leads to the third one, is that oftentimes uh, slavery was entered into voluntarily because uh, you can make a buck, you can make money. In other words, living as a free person in the, in the free Roman world um, didn't guarantee you a job. And working for somebody within their household, uh, under their name, taking upon yourself their name, their job, their business, their career, and so on and so forth, uh, actually offered you a certain amount of privileges and protections that just simply being free didn't necessarily offer you. So again, I I just want to really emphasize the fact that there are some very strong distinctions between what we would view as New World um, slavery and distinguished from kind of the Roman world form of slavery. And this is one of the reasons why I really want to just emphasize that this is why I think we can basically describe this as being sort of a workplace type of relationship. So when you see the concept that Paul raises with regard to servants, uh, you can think of that as sort of like an employee. And when Paul talks to the masters, you can think of that as basically being a boss or a manager or uh, an employer. So again, if you think about it this way, workers, because of this, um, they were oftentimes tempted based upon the type of relationship they had with their master. They had a really harsh master. They existed back then just as you know, harsh bosses exist today. If you had a really harsh master, you'd be tempted to, when the boss turns his back, for you to basically cheat a little bit. You know, take like extra cigarette breaks um, so that uh, you can just, you know, cheat on your hourly wage, whatever the case is, so that um, when the boss comes back in the room, you would throw it on the cigarette and get back to work uh, because you didn't want to be caught being lazy. And so it would be easy for you, out of disrespect for your boss, because you didn't really care about your boss, you didn't really like your boss because he wasn't really nice um, for you to basically take money from him in the form of not working hours in which you get paid for. Does that make sense? You guys follow along so far? And so this was obviously a problem back then in the first century. So the second thing that I want to take a look at real quickly are modern views, modern views of family as well as workplace, modern views of family and workplace. Now, in a lot of ways, um, in the ancient world, they basically had codes of conduct that were oftentimes written. And you can find examples of various forms of codes of conduct that were actually written to be given to sort of the master-slave type of relationship as well, you know, the boss-employee type of relationship, or, um, as well as family type of relationships. And most of them basically would say something like this, you know, don't beat your slave too hard, and don't yell at your kid too loud, and uh, don't be too mean or too rude or condescending to your kid. And again, the idea behind that is not so much saying the opposite, which is, you know, love your child. 
love your servant. You know, do well to them because they bear the image of God. It was more so that if you crush your child and your child builds a grudge against you, at some point he might usurp your authority and take advantage of you and might even kill you, kind of like what was common even within the Roman world, when you had a Roman emperor who had a son who came and took his place. If he didn't like dad, he would oftentimes just, you know, plot some form of conspiracy and kill his dad. And so the idea behind sort of these codes of conduct were more out of self-preservation as opposed to common good, showing kindness. You guys follow along so far? That's the idea. So um, in the modern world, we really don't have too many codes of conduct. I mean, you can go to bookstores and you can find articles and stuff like that are written by all sorts of people to kind of describe to you how to raise a family, how to work within the workplace. Um, um, Probably by and large, I think the number one thing that sort of feeds our understanding with regard to family as well as uh, how we are to venture out in the workplace and work are, and this might kind of sound silly, but I, I think it's true, are TV sitcoms. I think those actually form the way we think about family. All right, one of my favorites is, are The Simpsons. And it, obviously within that, um, you know, Homer Simpson is not sort of the epitome, the picture of a loving, generous father. He's totally the picture of an idiot. He's just absolutely dumb. He's totally clueless to life. I mean, the, really, the, anyone that knows of anything that's really going on in the family is Lisa. And outside of that, I mean, Bart is just always uh, making fun of his dad, condescending between his father. The father's condescending the son. There's always this rivalry between dad and son. It never really gets resolved, except for when they find sort of a commonality in which they agree on, like pizza. And outside of that, what happens is we sort of think about that, and this begins to form our understandings of how family relationships should really be conducted. And at the end of the day, like I said, is that better? Is that solution better than a father condescending his son and treating him like nothing more than utility? I mean, someone would argue and be like, well, well it's better. It's better than Rome. Better than, when, better than the way Seneca uh, you know, talked about children. But let me ask you, like I said earlier, is that solution really any better for the overall flourishing of the society and the world in which we live in? Again, some of them might argue and say, well, that's, that's kind of a cartoon-ish type of a solution, and uh, you'd be absolutely right. It's not just metaphorical, that's literal, because that's exactly what it is. Um, but I think um, what's, what makes the Simpsons so amazing is that they are sort of a cultural barometer as to what is sort of generally taking place within our culture. You guys follow along? Does that, does that make sense? You guys agree with that? Now, obviously, it may be take on cartoon form, but the ideas are still there. The themes are still there. Fathers are just sort of spineless. They don't ever want to really do much to correct their dads. Children are constantly rebelling against their moms and dads. They're the ones that sort of rule the house. Now, what we might not have in that modern context is the oppression of a dad upon his son. It's sort of this discussion in the bedroom between mom and dad. Should, should we kill the daughter? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and kill the daughter. That, that may be absent from modern forms of family. You guys understand? But what, what is, what's taken its place is really not that much better. Because it's still never really brought about flourishing. And what Paul is saying is that there's another way to understand family. There's another way to understand the workplace. It's different than the way this world operates. So oftentimes what you find in the family is sort of kind of a very common idea that basically says, don't impose your values, your, your ideology, your religion, your religious convictions, your concepts upon your children. Let your children grow. Let your children do what they want to do. And just sort of more or less 
shape them, help them guide along, maybe do what you can. If you see them headed for some really bad, dangerous type of a scenario, maybe scoot them back away from that edge so that, you know, they don't end up wounding themselves uh, for very long. But for the most part, let the children do what they want to do. Let them raise themselves and just sort of be there to monitor them so that they don't get themselves into too much trouble. That's a very common form in our world that basically just says let kids do what they want to do. So if they have ideas or, or, or if they're, you know, dealing with stuff or whatever, um, let them really kind of work it out on their own. And as we kind of go on, as we see, and again, some of these may be kind of over-exaggerations, but I don't think they're too far off from the truth of what has happened within our modern forms of culture. In a lot of ways, it's sort of a reaction against the oppressiveness of a heavy-handed father against his family. In other words, the pendulum sort of always swings from one end to the next. And I think that's kind of what we see within our modern forms of understanding of the family in the workplace. Secondly, with regard to the workplace, um, I think a lot of times what we have in the workplace is and are, I should say, a lot of people that are kind of filled with a form of entitlement. They feel as if they deserve a lot. They deserve a really good wage for doing a lot of, not a lot of work. Uh, I was just watching an interview, obviously, with Ashton Kutcher not too long ago. I mean, he won some sort of, like, teeny bop award or whatever. And uh, if you guys remember seeing him on there, he basically comes on. He's like, look, my problem with American teens is that you guys are a bunch of lazy. I mean, he didn't say it like that. But he's like, you guys are all lazy. You're entitled. You want to be like me, but you can't. And because you can't, you're all upset. I mean, again, I'm totally adding a lot of words in his mouth. But the point of the matter is, is he really addresses this issue of entitlement. Then he goes on to Ellen DeGeneres, and he talks about how the problem with American uh, youth culture, next generation, is just lazy. They l- sit around the house, play video games all day long, and they want something for that. That is a modern view of work. Do you agree? Not, maybe not necessarily within everybody, but it's very common amongst many. And the point that I would make is that what happens is that actually leads into sort of a very litigious society, meaning that when you don't get what you want, you're not getting what you feel like you deserve, you sue. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times bosses are very scared, very fearful of the relationship with their employers, employees because they're not really sure, are they going to be sued if they don't you know, give them the right amount of raise, if they don't treat them a particular way, are they going to be sued? And so everybody's very fearful and very afraid and walk on eggshells around everybody because, for the most part, the modern form of the workplace, and again, even though we might look at it and be like, well, that's a whole lot better than, you know, a, a boss yelling at his, you know, employees and making them work, you know, 15-hour work days and kind of these sweatshops where kids are like eight years old making shoes and stuff like that. Yeah, we would look at it and say, yes, it, it, it's, it is better. I mean, there, of course, are trade-offs, but that's what I'm saying. There are trade-offs. And in the place of sweatshops, in the place of, you know, 12-hour days and in the place of people being taken advantage of by oppressive employees and always living under the threat of being fired what we have is sort of the solution that's constantly filled, filled with fear on the other end where the bosses are always afraid and everybody's filled with sort of a sense of entitlement. They want to get paid a lot for doing very little. That's a problem in the modern world. And into all of this, Paul speaks. Paul says, look, God has designed these places, the marriage, which we've looked at for the past two weeks, the family, which we'll be looking at right now in just a moment, and the workplace, to be places where protection and security and training, where creativity and the building of community are to take place. And ultimately, both of these things, all of these things, actually lead to a thriving and a flourishing culture and community, whereby 
everything that's good, that represents God, has a free way of being able to bring blessing to the lives of other people. This is what Paul is saying. This is why Paul actually addresses these roles throughout the book of Ephesians. is because he believes that what happens is that when God begins to move on people's lives and changes them, not only are they saved in an ultimate sense, meaning one day when we die, we'll go to heaven, but even greater than that, or I should say alongside of that, or uh, as, uh, as a part of that, right now in this life, God is remaking us into people that reflect and shine forth his image in everything, in the marriages, families, in the workplace. So with that, I want to begin to begin to take a look at what I'll just simply describe as a Jesus-shaped view. And I say Jesus-shaped view because what Paul is constantly going to be going back to is this picture of Christ really at the center of it. Jesus-shaped view of both family as well as the workplace. So I want to begin, first of all, by taking a look at the idea or the concept that Paul basically uh, gives us with regard, or if you want to think of it this way, the vision, a renewed vision of what Paul has in mind for the family. So open your Bibles again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you guys uh, are already there, uh, follow along. If you're not, go ahead and open up there, and I'm going to read. I'm just going to go through it. I'm going to verse by verse and just kind of make some comments as we go through. Paul starts off by saying and addressing children. Now, every single one of us in this room, again, some of us might look at this and be like, well, I don't have any kids. But the fact of the matter is that every single one of you in this room are a child, meaning you have a mom and dad. That's the idea that Paul is talking about. Every one of us have a, uh, a set of parents. Now, parents may have passed. We may have had some form of um, people in our lives, maybe foster parents helping us, leading us, or uh, people guiding us through life. But the point of the matter is that every single one of us have some sort of relationship like this. And Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he says, honor your father and mother. This is uh, the first commandment with a promise. And he's actually quoting the fifth commandment that's out of the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 12. And then this is what he says, that it may go well with you and that you may live a long life in the land. So I want to pause right there and just kind of reflect on a couple things right here. That what Paul basically asks of the children, um, instructs the children. He says, listen, you children both obey and honor your mom and dad. Now, uh, the first idea of obey is really just that. It's obey. And so most would believe and identify the fact that especially as a child is young, we're taught to obey mom and dad. Um, and another passage that Paul talks about, uh, as well as right here, he says, obey them in the Lord, meaning there is sort of a cap on it. So if you want to think of it this way, um, we, if you're a child, have over us, in terms of an authority structure, mom and dad. They are our authority structure. But over mom and dad is God. That's what Paul's saying. So in other words, they don't have, they're not, the, at the, they're not the top of the food chain in terms of authority. They don't get to do anything they want to you, act in any particular way for you, towards you. They are under the authority of God. That's why Paul says, obey them as in the Lord. Then he goes on immediately to saying, honor your father and mother. And honor is a little bit more distinct than obey. Now, this is the idea. This is, again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the um, book of Exodus. And it's the idea of basically saying you're to honor your mom and dad. So here's something to think about. And a lot of times scholars are kind of quick to point this out because there is a distinction between honoring and obeying. In other words, there are going to be occasions, there may be occasions, in which, let's say, for example, you have a parent that gives you really bad advice. It's not godly advice. Again, it's not, quote, unquote, in the Lord. It's bad advice. Should you obey that? No. How can you obey them 
Um, or how can you honor them and obey them? So is it, in other words, the question is, is it possible to honor them while not obeying them? And that's the question that a lot of times scholars, theologians have wrestled with. And I think it's important for us to think about it this way because the concept I think that Paul is conveying is that honor is a way of basically giving recognition to your mom and dad for something. This may be challenging for some of us. Some of us are not free to give honor to our mom or dad because we feel as if our mom and dad have not lived up to certain expectations for us. They've let us down. They've wounded us. Maybe you have had a mom or dad that has actually been abusive to you has taken advantage of you, that has maybe been physically or verbally abusive to you or sexually, God forbid, abusive to you. And it's left deep wounds and deep injury within your heart and the idea, the concept, the thought of even somehow being and showing honor to them is sort of repulsive to you. How can you do that? Look, at the end of the day, all of us will have parents. You know, this is kind of one of those things oftentimes is when we talk about parents and parenting, it's easy for us, especially if you're a parent, to look at your life and be like, oh my gosh, this is, like the, this is the part of the message where we're going to be condemned for being really bad parents. Look, all I have to say is this. Um, every single one of you, as parents, are sinful and flawed people. All right? All of you. So some of you might be like, well, I'm going to be talking about how I failed. The fact of the matter is, is every one of you as parents have failed. Do you understand that? You will always fail. God only uses sinful, flawed, failed parents to raise children. And once you agree with that, once you identify with that, that's freeing. Because you begin to realize that, okay, wait a minute. At the end of the day, this is, this is really about God. This is not so much about me. It's about God using my weaknesses, my failures, my inabilities to somehow help shape and form and cultivate this little life. But the idea is that some, our parents will let us down. Our parents will fail us. And when they fail you, what's your response to that? Some of us have refused to forgive. And as a result of that, the thought of honoring them is something that is so foreign. It's, like I said, it's, it's repulsive to you to even think of somehow. Because really at the end of the day, what's really happening is that you are a slave to their failures. You've never been able to get beyond that. You've never been able to outlive that. You're, you're a slave. And what the gospel wants to do is set you free so that you can actually be free to honor them, so that you can be free to love them in spite of the fact that they failed you. That's gospel love, by the way. That's how God loves you, by the way. Because even though we've failed God, even though we've sinned, even though we've done things that have been in rebellion to God, God still loves us and accepts us. And this is the type of honoring and love, and obeying that God is actually calling children to do to the parents. Secondly, he then goes on to the fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction in the Lord. And so there's both a negative and a, uh, several positives. First of all, the negative. Uh, Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Um, the idea that's basically being conveyed here is that some of your translations might say, don't exasperate them. Don't exasperate them. So this is sort of a negative, but it's actually juxtaposed with positive. So in other words, hey, father. So there's another little bit of transition here I just need you to see. So in verse 1, he says, children obey your parents. So where parents are sort of plural. And it involves both mom and dad or some sort of foster parent or somebody that has kind of raised a child, both of them, all right? So obviously we see, first of all, that the job is for both mom and dad. But often those that have the role or oftentimes do, I should say, bring exasperation not so much the moms, maybe they can, but oftentimes it's the dad. And, and I can, to be quite frank with you, 
attest to the reality of this. Like, yes, I can relate to that. Yes, I can oftentimes be the one that can bring exasperation to my daughters. I have two of them. And this is, this is something I have to deal with and recognize and repent before God and before my children sometimes when I do this before them because this actually brings about that pain and that wounding and that hurt and that destruction that we talked about earlier at the very beginning. But my role as a dad is to help to try to bring about the undoing of that pain and wounding and destruction. In other words, and to replace it with healing and wholeness and restoration. And so what Paul says, first of all, in the negative is dads, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, here's a couple ways in which, in fact, eight ways and nine ways or something like that. I don't know, about nine I have written down here. Ways in which a dad, you can exasperate your children. I'll go through these really quickly. One, overcorrection. Overcorrection, if you overcorrect, overdiscipline your children, you will exasperate and bring about trouble into the hearts of your children. If you're always nagging them, if you're always nitpicking at them, if you're always constantly focused upon their failures and their flaws and never give them the opportunity to experiment and try and fail, you will exact, at some point exasperate them. Another way is undercorrection, to really never do anything, to not speak uh, into their lives, to not coach them, to not help them. And oftentimes one of the things that, has, that drives parents to not correct their children, especially in this modern day, in the world in which we live in, is because, again, the prevalent concept in our culture today, the sweeping ethos of today's world basically says let the children do and develop who they are and you just come alongside and coach them don't impose your understanding your vision your religious convictions don't impose all that upon them let them explore and discover and in some ways it's sort of cowardly because really at the end of the day if you're a parent that kind of takes that approach and I just let them do what they want to do I don't ever want to try to impose my discipline upon them look you need to understand the fact of the matter is that that There are literally agencies in America today right now, they get paid big money to do nothing but influence your children, to do nothing but impose upon them decisions. Anything from the type of toys they should buy, the type of food they should buy, McDonald's, the other types of things that try to impose upon them to get them to decide for them and just take you along for the ride. Your whole, their whole life is going to be filled with people trying to impose upon them their will. And if you do nothing to help coach them, to guide them, to lead them, to shepherd them, somebody else will. I say this to dads all the time. You have to, at some point, play an active role in your children's life. You can't just be non, not in touch with them. You can't be emotionally distant. You've got to be in relationship with them to help coach them, to guide them. Otherwise, somebody else will. And to not do that really exasperates them. Third one, spent too much time on that. Favoritism, showing favoritism. That obviously never does any good. Four, unrealistic expectations. Oftentimes parents can have really huge expectations upon kids to amount up to a certain level of uh, scholarly education, to really excel in sports, to excel in music. And maybe some of you are kids that have had a mom and dad like that that were constantly forcing you to do something, to do more, to do better. And you, know, you come home with an A. You're like, Mom, I got an A. They're like, I expected an A+. And you're like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, and the reality is it's like you are always feeling as if you fail their expectations, all right? Um, another one, fifthly, is overindulgence, always giving them 
what they want. Never saying no, never setting limits, never setting boundaries can actually at some point lead to where it exasperates them. It ruins them. Sixthly, discouragement. Again, lack of understanding or affirmation or encouragement. When they do something good, rather than picking them up, swiping them up and saying, I love you, you're awesome. Not because you did something good, but because you are mine. That is so crucial. Oftentimes parents are like, I love you because you mowed the lawn. Like, what that does, it actually forms a child's mind to think that the reason why you love them is actually connected to what they do. Love for your children should come because they are yours. They bear your image. They belong to you. That helps them to have a security in a sense of knowing that your love is not, does not even flow with their performance. It's always the same. Another one is um, seven, uh, neglect, turning your back upon them, making them constantly feel like they are nothing but an interruption in your life. Like uh, you are always wanting to go out and hang out with your friends or do something, and then it's like you kind of send sort of these vibes to your kids like, oh, I would love to go surfing, but i got to go hang out with you. You know, that type of mentality, it's just like that actually causes them to feel like they're nothing but an imposition all the time, that they're really not loved. Another way is abusive words, talking condescendingly to them, putting them down, making fun of them, and then ninthly, physical abuse. All of these are ways in which actually exasperate and ruin, bring pain and hurt into your kids' lives. Now, the positive that Paul actually supplies is he says, raise them up, which is another way to think about this, is to nurture them in discipline and instruction of God. The idea here is that you're not to just simply give them a bunch of principles to live by, but you're to lead them to a person, lead them to God. That's what parenting is. Parenting is not just simply making kids uh, form to your certain type of moral code. Your idea, your goal, your aim is to help them to meet Jesus, help them to see how beautiful and good Jesus is. Ever since my kids were young, it's been the one prayer that my wife and I share and have always prayed over our kids is that we pray that they would one day see the beauty and the love of Jesus, that they would really see it, not just hear me talk about it, not just hear me you know, express my love for Jesus and how great I think he is, but that they would actually experience. It's kind of the difference between like when you, you, you eat some really good chocolate cake, for example. All right, I love chocolate, especially 70% and above chocolate. I love chocolate. But if I'm eating a, you know, a chunk of chocolate and, I'm, and you've never eaten chocolate before, I can tell you how good it is and how well it tastes and so on and so forth. But if you've never tasted it, you really don't know how good it is until you actually taste it. And I can tell my kids how great and beautiful and lovely Jesus is, but I, my prayer is that one day they would actually taste and see that God is good. And that's really the aim of parenting, to nurture, to split, discipline uh, in the instruction of God. So finally, if you think of it this way, children are to submit to parents that do that and honor parents of all. Parents are to submit to the example of God as Father. Now, let's move on real quickly to the workplace. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, uh, says this. Again, he's talking to both bondservants and then masters. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from heart, from the heart, rendering service with 
a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. The point that he's making is that just work hard, bondservants. Some of you might have really bad bosses or managers, and they don't really treat you well. But what he's saying is that if, if you have that type of boss, work in such a way in which you realize that that boss is sort of a, a sign, it's a pointer. But if you look beyond that boss to the true boss, and you see that the true boss, God, who manages this universe, that he loves you, he cares for you, he uses his power to leverage your good, to bless you, to help you, to sustain you, to strengthen you, to provide you energy so that you can work hard, so that you can then pay your bills and be provided for by God. All of these things God does to help you, to assist you. And just because you may have a boss that's not nice, that's not kind, there may be certain protocol that you need to do to kind of rectify that because obviously we have rights in which we can do that. And I would say, do that if you need to be. But at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is look beyond the earthly boss to see the heavenly boss and see that he sees you. He takes good care of you. And finally, he speaks to masters and he says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven uh, that there is no partiality with him. So what he speaks to masters basically says, hey, you guys do the same thing. You work in a way that helps and blesses your servant. Take care of them. Now I want to finish with this question because some of us might ponder in this question, kind of be like, well, how, how do we truly love? You're a child. Love a parent that has wounded you, that has hurt you. How do you serve a boss that is not kind or that is not good? How do you help... Um, Bring blessing to the life of an employee that's lazy, that's not working good. And the idea that I think Paul is trying to convey is that there's a new way of understanding how the family and how the workplace can form and function, and it's at the very center of it is Jesus. And what I think he's basically saying is that this kind of raises the final question, I'm done, is how do we do this? Everything that Paul has been saying up in this point actually is anchored in chapter 5. So look back there real quick, chapter 5, verse 18. And this is what Paul says. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to begin to talk about all these types of things. And one of the things that he naturally goes into is by being filled with the Spirit, that enables you wives to love and submit to your husbands. That enables you husbands to lovingly serve your wives and submit to the example of Christ in your marriage. That enables you uh, sons and daughters to lovingly honor and uh, take care of and obey your parents. That allows you moms and dads to basically do what you can to lovingly surrender your heart to the example of God by nurturing and caring for your children. That enables you bosses to lovingly serve and help your employees. It enables you employees to lovingly work hard in the work environment. And what Paul is saying is that really at the end of the day, all of this is about a glimpse or a vision of who Jesus is. So let me try to bring this home and I'm done. So let me put it this way. If you reflect upon most of these roles, what you'll discover is that most of these roles, to some degree, you can say that Jesus lived them out. I'll give you an example. If you think about it this way, Jesus was the perfect son who honored and obeyed his father. Even when it was difficult, even when the father says, you've got to drink this cup, Jesus says, thy will be done. If you think of it this way, Jesus is also the husband who lovingly laid down his life for his bride to beautify her, to love her, to cover her, to cleanse her, even though she was undeserving. You think of Jesus this way as well. He is the master. He rules all things. Do you understand that? The whole cosmos is in his hand. 
Philippians chapter 2 says that he laid aside all of this so that he can take upon himself the form of a servant so that he could serve you by bringing about salvation, by bearing your sin, by bringing your cleansing. To the degree that you see that God did all of these things for you because of his great love for you, what that does is that frees your heart from simply saying, I've got to serve an idiot boss, or I've got to somehow honor my dumb dad, or I've got to somehow take care of my rebellious kids, or I've got to somehow service a constantly complaining and overly entitled employee to the degree that you see that God has done all of this for you because of his great love for you, that liberates your soul. That is what the gospel does. It reorients you to God by cleansing you and washing you and forgiving you of all of your trespasses and sins, and it also reorients you towards your neighbor to serve them because they bear the image of God. Do you understand how the gospel changes everything? It changes marriages. It changes the family. It changes the workplace. This is why we love the gospel. It sets us free. And I want to finish, and we're going to pray. I want to invite you all to finish with me, and we all stand. We're going to sing. Partake of communion, if you'd like. If you're here and you got kids in just a few minutes, just make sure that around 35 after that you go pick up your kids. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But we're going to finish, and I want to just invite you to sing. I want to invite you to respond. Uh, we'll have some people over off to the side that would like to pray for you. They'll be there to pray for you. We have some rugs in front. If you want to respond by just getting on your knees before Jesus as master, confessing to him your sin, your need for help, ask God to help you. We believe in a God that wants to truly help. He's here. He's not just simply out there. He's here right now, and he loves us. So I want to invite you to respond to him. Respond by confessing sin. Respond by partaking of communion. By respond for some of you, by asking somebody to pray for you. That's humbling. But that oftentimes is what leads us to being free. To being free from these grudges that we have against parents that failed us. Be freed from this need to constantly look for ways to just simply get by in the workplace because we don't like our boss. To be free. To actually truly, maybe for the first time, to love somebody who is unlovely. Do you understand the power to do that is only found in the gospel? That is the gospel. That you and I here in this room were unlovely before God. And yet God says, even though you were unlovely, I still loved you. I paid a price you couldn't pay to set you free. At great expense to myself, but free to you. And this is what God invites us to come to the table to receive. So let's come to him. Let's come to that table and receive from the hand of our God, life, healing, salvation, a renewed mind as to what and how this gospel really radically changes our lives. God, thank you. We want to respond now.